you have your Bibles, open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. If you're using one of the church Bibles that we provided for you, that's on page 811. And we're going to be examining verses 5 through 18 of Matthew, chapter 6. Now, we find ourselves in Matthew 6, verses 5 through 18, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, who could argue that this is the greatest sermon ever recorded? Now, I know after six weeks into Redemption Hill, you may be thinking, I mean, Tanner, you know, you're, you're preaching, not too bad. John, you're preaching, you know, it's not too bad. But, uh, okay, that was supposed to be a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that? Okay? I'm not comparing myself with Jesus, right, um, in, in, any, in any way. Um, so, so this is the greatest sermon that we have recorded in the pages of Scripture. Jesus, in Matthew 5-7, through 7, is unpacking what he, the way that he started his public ministry. What did he say to start his public ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so now, in chapters 5-7, through 7, this Sermon on the Mount as we know it, he is explaining what life in the kingdom should look like for his disciples, or for his would-be disciples. We find in chapter 5, that he declares the shocking statement. You can even look at it if you want. Chapter 5, verse 20. He tells his disciples, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this had to be shocking because of all people, the Pharisees had their act together, right? And I choose the word act very intentionally, as we'll see in our passage today. I mean, they look so righteous on the outside. Surely, no one can be more righteous than them. But then what Jesus does is six different times, you keep reading through Matthew 5, six different times, he says, you've heard it said to those of old, and then he'll give an Old Testament command. But then he's like, but I say to you, but I say to you. So what Jesus does is he heightens the law of God to get at our hearts. So he says, look, it's not just enough for you not to murder someone, not to commit adultery. He says, look, if you're angry with your brother or sister in an unrighteous manner, it's as if you've committed murder in your heart. He says, men, or even ladies, if you look at a woman or if you're a man lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus heightens this moral law of God. He says, God wants your devotion from the heart. And now in chapter 6, what he's going to do is he's going to take some devotional practices, and he's also going to cut straight to the heart. He's going to say, God is interested in your pursuit of him, but he wants it in a particular kind of way. We need to hear these words from Jesus this morning in Matthew 6, because we are, if we're being honest, we are prone to becoming lazy, and distracted in our devotional pursuit of God. Added to that, we oftentimes engage in these spiritual acts of worship for the wrong reasons. And this is exactly what we find in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 18. What we're going to learn is this, is that we must pursue God with a desire for more of Him rather than praise of me. The first point I want us to see this morning is this, that we should pursue the praise of God rather than the praise of man. Look in verse 5 with me, and then we'll skip down to verse 15 
six, excuse me, 16, and you're going to see the similarity between these two verses. Captures a major theme here of pursuing the praise of God rather than the praise of man. Look in verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not like be, be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Skip down to verse 16. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And so Jesus pulls no punches. Once again, we've seen this over and over in the Gospels. He attacks the hypocrites of his day, the religious imposters who appear to have this form of godliness, and yet by their very lives and the intentions of their heart, they deny the power of godliness. Say, so why? Well, a hypocrite is essentially an actor. It's someone who's playing a role, playing a part, but they're not sincere. They actually practice the very things they denounce. And that's most of the time how we think about hypocrites, right? We think about someone who says one thing and then they do another. Well, there's actually another form of hypocrisy. It's someone who practices maybe even a right action, but God says they don't do so from a heart of worship. They do so for the applause and the praise of men. So Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of many in his day. And I think it's so important for us to realize, I mean, surely you have friends. Surely you've heard of those who are skeptical of the church that might say or think something like this. Man, I will never step foot in a church on Sunday morning because that place is full of a bunch of hypocrites. Right? Perhaps you've even thought this before. Well, we might tell them that if they were to join us on a Sunday morning, they would enter into the crowd of hypocrites because, well, we all say things that we don't actually practice, right? I mean, if we really cut down that and even the irreligious people of the world are hypocritical in some form or fashion, right? But another thing to realize is that Jesus takes great issue with hypocrisy. I mean, he denounces it over and over again throughout the gospel. He hated hypocrisy more than the most skeptical atheist in greater Boston. Jesus says in verse 5 that these hypocrites love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. I mean, they're the kind of people that love to come to church so that they can pray out loud and everyone can hear how eloquent their prayers are. They would love to go to the great intersections of our city. Well, from Medford, that's like Riverside and High Street, or kind of east side of Medford, going to Somerville, I've read, you know, that intersection 16 and 20. I mean, they would love to, you know, stand with a sign there and wax eloquent on their devotion to God. Maybe you might find them down in Boylston Street on the street corners there, all the shoppers and people working there so that they could hear their beautiful prayers. And Jesus says they do so because they want to hear the applause of me. Their devotion really undercuts the essence of prayer. Prayer is directed to God. We don't pray with an eye to those around us. We pray with our eyes, focused like a laser on God. 
with any external act of righteousness, there is great temptation to wear a devotion on our sleeve, is there not? I mean, we, we all, if we're being honest, we all crave applause. We all crave recognition. We all want to be made much of, even in our religious devotion. There is that temptation. Jesus says in verse 5, this is a huge warning for us. He says in verse 5, look, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus says, if you crave the praise of man, you better enjoy it because that's all you're going to get. That's it. Enjoy it now because that's as long as it's going to last. To crave the praise of people is to reject the praise of God. Jesus says, if you're doing your religious acts, you're praying for the applause of others, then you have forfeited my praise. Now, does this mean that we can never share about how God's at work in our life? Does it mean that we can never pray with others? I mean, can we never tweet about how God's at work in our life or, you know, update our Facebook status? Hey, please pray for, you know, join me in praying for da 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 Of course not. But even with those things that we sometimes do, rightfully so, we just need to check our heart and make sure that we're doing it out of a heart that's worshiping God rather than seeking to look good before others. Now, before we move on, I want to flip the script of what Jesus is saying here because there is another form of public prayer. There's kind of another angle, an opposite but related angle to this that I think would be helpful for us to consider. See, perhaps most of us this morning would not be in as great of danger as seeking the approval of others when we pray, but perhaps some of you are reluctant to pray because you have the same root problem, and that is this. You fear people more than you fear God. Or to say that another way, you respect the thoughts of others. You care what they think about you more than you care about what God thinks about you. See, the fear of man can keep us from public praying as much as it can cause us to want to pray in public. You understand that? We think, think about this. Wednesday night, Hillside Community Group, just less than a mile from here, at the Miller's home. Josh has just led an incredible discussion over the Word from Sunday. This is what we do at Community Group. After, you know, we enjoy some coffee, maybe it deserved, someone whips it up, puts it up, brings it. And after the discussion, then typically we have a time of prayer. We take prayer requests, praises, we want to know what's going on in each other's lives. And after we get to that point where we've written our prayer concerns now, Josh, like the good leader that he is, he says, would anyone like to lead us in prayer? And there is this deafening silence. Now, why is that? Is it because you're new to the group? I mean, that is some of the valid reasons. Are you new to the group? You're just kind of like getting to know these people. You're kind of even just trying to figure everything out. That's understandable. Maybe, maybe you want to be humble. Maybe you want to give someone else the opportunity to pray. But perhaps you don't want to pray because you're not going to sound that great. You're not going to sound like the leaders. You're not going to sound so eloquent and impressive. And I have to tell you that I struggle with this in my life. My first year of seminary, 
I went to the land of, you know, seminary is the land of spiritual giants, okay? Seminary is for, you know, dudes like me, dudettes like me that, you know, want a theological education so they can better serve the church. And so you go to seminary and you hang out with people who, like, wake up and do their devotions in the Greek New Testament and, you know, like, read books about that thick. And I can remember praying with some of my friends, like, come over to our apartment, let's pray together. And I went, and all of a sudden I'm just hearing these people pray, like using words I've never heard before. And I'm thinking, man, I don't sound like them. I don't talk to God like that. I'll sound so elementary. And the fear of man, what those people, my friends, even my friends, what they thought about me kept me from praying. You know, it's kind of like one of the deals, like, Three or four or five people pray. Like everyone in the rooms prayed. Like I'm still trying to like, muster up the courage to pray because I cared what they thought more than what God. Look, God is interested in our heart. It can be the most simple prayer, and God can love it. It can delight His heart because He sees not what man sees. Proverbs 29:25 says that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So Jesus tells us to pursue the praise of God rather than the praise of man. Number two, we should pursue God in prayer because he is our father. Pursue God in prayer because he is your father. Listen to this. David Sills, a missions professor that I know, he says this. If you ever want to humble a person, ask them about their prayer life. If you ever want to humble someone, Ask them about their prayer life. See, prayer, we know this. Prayer is intentionally conveying a message to God. It should be the air that we breathe as Christians. I love what Lloyd-Jones says about this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that prayer is the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. He goes on to say, There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. The Bible is crystal clear Christians as individuals and we as a church should be devoted to prayer. Read Acts 2, the description of the early church. says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, fellowship, and prayer. Romans 12, 12 says, be devoted to prayer. So follow along with me as we read through verses 5 through 15 of Matthew 6. Let's read it together. Actually, follow along with me as I read. And when you pray... You must not like, be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray them like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Excuse me, right through these verses, Jesus highlights two wrong ways that we come to pray. Number one, he says that we are, as we've talked about, not to pray for the sake of others, not to go out into public places, just to be seen by others. He says, actually, a better way would be to go into a closed room. Some translations say your closet. Go into your closet, get tucked away, and just where it's you and God, and pursue God, and don't worry about anyone else. One scholar asked these questions, and he said that we should ask ourselves these questions to kind of diagnose our hearts as we pray. Listen to these. Do I pray more fervently and more frequently when alone with God than I do in public? Do I love the secret place of prayer? Is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? Robert Murray McShane, Scottish pastor in the 19th century, said this. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Who are you before God when no one else is around? That reveals much about who you are spiritually before God. In verse 7, he exposes another unacceptable form of prayer. He says that the Gentiles like to heap up these empty phrases. Now let's pause and ask the question, who are the Gentiles? What is it, exactly does that mean? Well, the Gentiles here refer to people outside of the people of God. All right? We are, most of us probably are Gentiles here. Someone who is not of, of Jewish uh, ethnicity. And those were people who were outside of the people of God. And so Jesus says, look, people who don't know my Father, they think that God will hear them because of their many words. And Jesus says, look, God is not impressed. He is no more inclined to hear because of the word count of your prayers. But he hears on the basis of our relationship. Verse 8 says that your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We have a little two and a half. You're a little girl, her name's Parker. She is, by my estimation, the cutest kid downstairs at Transformation Station, okay? Josh, I'm sure, will want to arm wrestle me after the service for that claim. Um, he might, he would probably win when we do that. He's so, you know, beasty back there. Um, but um, Parker, when she gets up in the morning, I mean, I, I know her, right? So I know, number one, that she's kind of like her mom in that, she doesn't like me to be too interactive in the morning. She kind of wants her space. But then after, you know, we kind of do her routine, she'll say, Daddy. And I know what she wants. She, the, the, the words that are going to follow, Baba. She wants her Baba. She wants her little routine to happen there. And I can tell you, I love to hear that word. And I love to meet her requests. This is how our Heavenly Father is with us. We come to God on the basis of a relationship. So Jesus now in verses 9 through 13 gives us what we know as the Lord's Prayer. It may be better termed the disciples' prayer because Jesus is giving it to his disciples as a pattern for their praying. Before we jump into this, I just want to kind of give us all a reminder here, a warning, and that is this, that sometimes we become so familiar with 
the words of Scripture that we kind of check out and say, oh, I've got that. Oh, I memorized that when I was a kid. Oh, I've prayed that a thousand times with other believers. And yes, while the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer is very, very simple to where a child can learn it. Which, by the way, if you're a parent, what a great prayer to teach your children. Teach them the Lord's Prayer at an early age. But it's not just simple. It is profoundly deep. I mean, we'll spend all eternity, and that's not just like preacher hyperbole. We will spend all eternity understanding the depths of this prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's going to go on for eternity. So this is a deeply significant prayer. Jesus provides us for his disciples as a pattern for prayer. So can we pray this verbatim? If our hearts are engaged, well, that's a good thing to do. But Jesus lays this out as a way to guide our prayer. I think you're going to see what I mean as we work through it. First, he begins by saying the words, Our Father. See, God is our Father. He's not just my Father, he's not just your Father. He is our Father. We're saved to be the people of God together. We've been adopted into his families. We're family. We're now brothers and sisters in Christ with one heavenly Father. And it's because of Jesus, because of his death on the cross, because of what he's done for us, we can approach God as our Father. Listen to this. You do not have to go through another person. You don't have to go through a priest, a saint, to come to God. There's only one way we come to God. There's one mediator between God and man, presenting to us as the man Christ Jesus. Now, it's not my intention to pick on particular traditions this morning. In fact, to be fair, we're going to look at fasting in a minute, and I'll just say the Catholic Church does a much better job, I think, by and large, with this concept of fasting than most Protestant churches. So I'm not just taking shots here. We want to be critical in the way we think, not only about others, but especially about ourselves, even more so about ourselves. God is our Father. He is our Father who is in heaven. Do you, do you see the balance there? God is both imminent, He is near, and He is transcendent. He reigns above all. He is both intimate with us, and He is infinite. The basis of our praying is based on this relationship, our Father. But then what Jesus does is he says, after you come to your father, he lays out six different petitions, six different requests that we are to make before God. Let's break these down one by one. First, we are to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. I mean, this is a great way to consistently begin your praying. Father, may your name, name is the character of God, his fullness, who he is, May you be set apart, treated as holy, worshipped, because there is none like you, as the Old Testament says over and over and over again. Jesus prayed this way in John 17. Father, glorify your name. We should ask ourselves, when we pray, do our prayers most often start with our needs or his glory? Jesus says, start your praying by hallowing the Father's name, treating it as the second request is very simple. Your kingdom come. Now again, let's not just rush over these words. I mean, these are not like words from Jesus. This is a tenacious request. Jesus says, pray like you care that the mission advances. As 
ask God to send the reality of his kingdom into our lives, into our churches, into our cities. This request has both a now and a not yet element to it. Some scholars want to pick a side, I think it's both. It has a now element in that we are praying that God's kingdom, his, his saving reign would come into our hearts and, and, and exercise rule over our lives. But it's also a not yet request in that the kingdom of God is not fully realized yet. That one day Jesus will return and he will usher into his kingdom where now there will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more crying, no more death. So pray both ways. How desperately do you desire for God's kingdom to come? I mean, like right now. How much do you desire this? And if you desire it, then what are you, what are you willing to do about it? See, I'm afraid that our lack of prayer betrays the apathy that resides in our hearts too much of the time. People are dying without Christ. People's lives are broken. And far too much of my time, I live as if, as if everything is all good. Rather than hitting my knees and picking up my prayer list, I hit the couch and pick up the remote. Prayer is work. It's work, but it's an all-important work. John Piper says this about prayer. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. What does Piper mean? He means that there is a spiritual battle going on. I mean, people are not worshiping God well, by and large. Too often in our own life, we're not worshiping Him very well. There's a spiritual battle going on, so we pray as a very, very important means in the battle. We don't know what prayer is for until we understand life is war. Ask God that his kingdom would come. We keep bringing up this D.A. Carson kind of thought from the last couple of weeks. He says that to seek the kingdom is to enter into the kingdom, to submit to the saving reign of the kingdom, and to spread the kingdom. That's a great way to pray for the kingdom to come. Pray that people will enter into the kingdom, to submit to the saving reign of God in his kingdom, and to spread it as widely as we possibly can. The third request, the third very God-centered request is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, here Jesus is instructing us to pray that God's moral will and his sovereign will would be accomplished in our lives. And, and do you notice how that this request actually actually flows out of these first two? I mean, if, when we do his will, when we love his will, his name is going to be hallowed in our life. His kingdom is going to come in our midst when we practice his will. Will. So these first three requests, did you notice, they are radically God-centered. These should provide the foundation for all of our other requests that we make before God. But Jesus realizes that, hey, it's okay for us to pray for ourselves. It's okay to pray for the needs, both physical and spiritual, that we have. And that's what he unpacks in the next three phrases. The next three requests go like this. Number one, give us this day our daily bread. So bread here is probably a term that is used to cover all food and perhaps even all kind of physical needs. Jesus knows we have needs. We need sustenance to live our lives. So he says, ask God. He will provide. 
But then number two, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We should understand debts as sins here. Just as we have the need for daily sustenance to kind of keep us going, energy, food to keep us going, we have daily need to ask God to forgive us of our sins. Both the sins that we willfully commit, those are called sins of commission, and the, the sins of omission, those are the good things that we neglect to do. So we always need God's grace. And he actually points out in verses 14 and 15, look at those with me if you will, the importance of seeking not only the forgiveness of God, but being quick to forgive others. Look what he says. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Finally, he says we should pray like this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations say evil. Some translations say evil one. They could even be, really be taken either way. They both have the same thrust, right? That, that God would keep us from evil. That, that his grace would keep us from going down the evil path. That we wouldn't give in to temptation. That we would pursue righteousness and purity with our lives. You may have heard this prayer and even recited it hundreds of times with this tag on the end, this doxology that says something like, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Well, in the Bibles that we provide for you and in my ESV Bible here, that is omitted. And the reason is that, that scholars, many scholars today, think very reliably, don't feel like that's a part of the original. Now, is it something that we can pray? By all means. I mean, if you want to tack that on, that's a beautiful way of expressing devotion to God. But that is why you may not see it in your text. So again, remember, this is a pattern for praying. When you pray for others, when you pray for the nations, this is a great way to, to pray. God's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, and then beyond that, sure, by all means, pray for our physical and spiritual needs. Now that we've walked through the content of the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, I want to ask a couple of questions about prayer and seek to answer them. Number one, how should we pray? I mean, this is, this is raised throughout the passage. So we can look at our posture in praying. It says that these, these hypocrites stand to pray. Is it, is it wrong to stand to pray? Absolutely not. Maybe we've already done that this morning. But it's not just standing when we pray. We can pray kneeling. We can pray on our face before God. What about the place of prayer? Well, sure, we are to get along with God. We need to find times to make that happen. Where it's just us and God. We're not worried about anyone else. We're not praying with anyone else. It's just us and our Father. But there are also, obviously, other times where we pray in public. We pray with groups of believers. Thirdly, what about the length of our prayer? I mean, this is a concise prayer. Well, what we see in the Gospels that there were some nights where Jesus spent all night in prayer. So, so Jesus here is not prohibiting lengthy prayer. He's just getting to the point that it's not our many words that God is impressed with, but which he'll hear us. It's our hearts engaged with him. And then finally, what about the style? This is a, a structured prayer. But we don't just have to pray in a structured way. I mean, you may not always start with, God, may your name be glorified. I mean, you may just have a need on your heart and say, God, help that person. 
They need your grace. Ephesians 6.18, this kind of gets at all of this. It says that we should be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So that gets at the how of praying. This touches on some of the, the hows of praying. What about this question? How can we grow in our prayer life? How can we grow? Let me give a few encouragements. Number one, pray, pray, pray. Pray by yourself. Pray with others. Pray at all times. I read this book by Andrew Murray called With Christ in the School of Prayer after my junior year of college. And one of the most helpful insights from that book, he says, look, if you want to grow in your prayer life, pray. Just get to it. It's a great way to grow in our devotion to God through prayer. Number two, know the God to whom you pray. Know God. The better we know God, the more we will trust him to deliver on his promises. The more we know God, the more we will desire to go to him in prayer. I love what Octavius Wendell says about believing successful prayer. Listen to this. Believing prayer is prevailing successful prayer. I love this language. It assails the kingdom of heaven with holy violence and it carries it as by storm. It believes that God has both the heart and the arm. Don't miss this. God has both the heart and the arm, both the love that moves him and the power that enables him to do and to grant all that his pleading child requests of him. I think that we will pray more when we know God better, when we know that God is love, God is powerful. He has both the heart and the arm to answer whatever we request. Thirdly, pray the word. We do this on Sunday mornings oftentimes with our corporate prayer. We take prayers of Paul, prayers like this, prayers of Jesus, to pray through those prayers. But don't just limit it. I mean, you can pray any part of Scripture. You can just, from your devotion, you can just pray through it. Ask God to help you live out these commands. Pray Scripture for those you love. Number four, be strategic. I mean, we plan for everything else in our life. At least some of us do. Others of us kind of need to work on being a little more organized, a little more, you know, a little more planners. Why don't we have a plan for prayer? Related to that, use tools. Use tools like a prayer journal. Get a document on your computer. Use one of those handy dandy apps on your smartphone. And get a prayer list going where it's accessible, where you can strategically pray for your friends, for persistent needs, for redemption help, for the nations for you fill in the blank, whatever it is. Be strategic in prayer. And then finally, I would encourage you to read books on prayer. I would say that every year or two or three, it would be a really good idea. There are a lot of just short, potent books on prayer. We'll probably even write a blog on that this week with some recommendations. But it's good. It's good for our soul to let God kind of smoke us to be inspired, to be a little more devoted, get that a little more devotion, a little more fervent, in our prayer. And sometimes we seem to be kind of set straight in line. Get kicked in the tail. Choose your analogy with me, if you will. Now, final question. Why does this matter for redemption? Why is prayer so important for us as a church? Well, you may not realize it, but there are hundreds, if not thousands of people praying for what God is doing right now in Boston through this church. I mean, let's ask the question, 
How did God lead us to Boston, lead us to Medford more specifically? Through prayer. How did God put a leadership team together to move here to start a church? Through prayer. How did God provide funds to kind of initially get started before we are, you know, at the self-sustaining level as a church? He did so through prayer. How did God provide this awesome place to meet on Sunday mornings? Through prayer. Did you know that just a year and a half ago they said, we will never rent to a church? I keep that on the DL. Um, they said that we never went to a church. Well, here we are. God answers prayer. How is God opening up huge doors to serve our community? How did we connect with you? I mean, whether you realize it or not, people are praying. God works through prayer. I love what Hudson Taylor says. You want to write this down? Learn to move man through God by prayer alone. Learn to move man through God by prayer alone. It is my prayer that Redemption will be a praying church. If we're a praying church, it's not going to just happen on Sunday morning when we kind of have our five minutes of corporate prayer. It's not just going to happen on community or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, whatever over the nights you know we start to meet. It's going to have to happen because people are meeting together outside of the scheduled times to get together, not just to hang out, although that's a good thing to do, but to actually pray together. It's going to happen when we let people know what's going on. We send a text message. We send an email letting people know of prayer requests. It's going to happen when we follow up on prayer needs and we rejoice when God answers prayer favorably. And we stay at it when we haven't seen a breakthrough happen yet. The key to us being a healthy church is for us to devote ourselves to prayer, both as individuals and as a community of faith. And a great way for us to pray is to let the Lord's prayer be our guide. So we're to pursue God through prayer, understanding that God is our Father. And then finally, we're to pursue God through fasting with a desire for more of Him. Let's read through verses 16 through 18. Jesus continues on and He says this, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Surely I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is sees in secret will reward you. So let's ask the question, what is fasting? Fasting is voluntarily abstaining from food or another regular routine for spiritual purposes. So we're abstaining Primarily in Scripture is from food, but it can be from some other regular routine for spiritual purposes, namely to pursue God. Does the idea of fasting kind of seem radical to you? I mean, it's like, don't we, we kind of just like step back and say, oh, I thought like monks fast, right? Not just like as regular kind of followers of Christ. Well, did you notice when we read that in not just in verse 15, but in verse 17, Jesus says, when you fast, seems like this is an expectation for his followers. Fasting displays a hunger for God. When we fast, we say, God, you are more valuable, you are better than food or anything else that I have in my life, and I'm willing to sacrifice it that I might have more of you. True fasting is something like this. We starve from that thing in our life that we might feast on Christ. Scripture provides many different motivations for why we should fast. Maybe we're seeking God in prayer. Maybe we just need some guidance 
in our lives spiritually. Maybe we're seeking direction just for a decision that's coming up. Other times we see people praying, uh, fasting so that they can express humility and repentance. Other times it's to overcome temptation, to, to minister to the needs of others. I mean, Jesus started his public ministry by what? Fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. Fasting was a crucial part of the spirituality of the early church. We see this in Acts 13. What does it say in verses 2 and 3 of Acts 13? It says this, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, this is a pivotal moment in the history of the church. Paul and Barnabas are sent out on their first missionary journey. I mean, this is when the gospel starts to explode in the book of Acts. Paul is going all throughout Asia Minor, all the way into Europe, to take the gospel of Christ to the nations. Where did that begin? It started through prayer and fasting. If we desire to see God work in the life of this church, we should take serious this call to prayer and fasting. Let me ask you this morning, are you desperate for God? Are you desperate for God? If we're desperate for God, we're going to be willing to sacrifice things in life, whether that be food or whether it be something else. Maybe this week, I want to encourage all of us, consider practicing a fast. Not for the sake of anyone else, but just because you love God, just because you're desperate for God. You may give up a meal or two a week. You may give up something that you love dearly. Maybe that's the internet. Maybe that's the television. Maybe that's leisure. I don't know what it is for you. But maybe God would lead you to fast, to give up something so that you might have more of him. We're to pursue God through prayer and through fasting. We'll close with this. Let me, let me ask us this question. What will Redemption Hill look like two years from now? What will Redemption Hill look like five years from now? Twenty years from now? I mean, Will our worship services be packed, even more packed out than Dunkin' Donuts on Sunday morning between 8.30 and 9 o'clock? It's kind of a routine I've gotten in the past few weeks. It's going to get going in the morning. I mean, it's packed. Will God do that in our midst? Will we see lives change, people's needs being met, our community a better place because of this church? Will we see marriages being restored? Children growing up in Christ-centered homes. Will we start other churches? And if so, how many? Will we send some of our members to the nations that they might take the gospel of Christ to people who desperately need help? You see, the verdict is still out on all of those questions. But one thing is for sure. It will not happen apart from us seeking the face of God through prayer and fasting. What is the power of Christian hope? Power of Christian Hope says this, Jesus enables us to pursue God and experience increasing measures of his fullness through prayer and fasting. Some of you may not be sure if you have a relationship with God. It only happens through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how we can, that's the only way that we can be right with God. So if that's you this morning, I mean, your prayer life isn't going to be so strong because you have no basis on which you come to God. You come to God through Christ. We need to be a follower of Christ for our prayers to be potent and powerful. 
So Jesus enables us to come to God, and then he also enables us to experience more of the fullness of God. I mean, do you want to see God at work in your life? Do you want to experience more of God? Seek him through prayer and through fasting. 